Darkseid hacks Colonial Pipeline and extorts $5 million, not to mention messing up the East Coast gas supply. Meanwhile, Hamas rains rockets down on Israel for no good reason. So how much is Russia involved? What about Turkey? What about Iran? Are each of these incidents standalone stories, or are they part of a greater geopolitical game? What do pipelines and rockets tell us about our enemies? I discuss all this and more with Havoc Journal writer and former Special Forces and DIA officer Richard Liebel and Havoc Journal owner Charlie Faint. So this episode almost got derailed early on when my kid barged in multiple times to figure out how he could play Austin Powers on my phone. But besides a lot of word salad and hemming and hawing, I don't think I detracted too much from the episode to fix that and set him up correctly on Austin Powers and pivot back to the two-state solution or whatever it is we were discussing when I had to deal with him. So it didn't totally mess things up. It's just what happens when my wife is out and I'm on childcare duty and have to do an episode. So I don't think it'll detract from your overall enjoyment of the episode. Other than that, though, the episode was great. It covered everything. We covered special forces, humanitarian missions. We covered, uh, geez, uh, how to be, I don't want to say a minor league archaeologist, a junior archaeologist. I don't know, basically how to do sort of archaeological work uh, under the auspices of the Corps of Engineers as a transitioning veteran. Uh, we covered a lot. It's an awesome episode. You guys are really going to enjoy it. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is the Weekly Havoc. Welcome to this week's episode of the Weekly Havoc, a roundtable discussion of the week's events by the staff and writers at Havoc Journal. Richard Liebel spent 34 years with the Department of Defense as a Special Forces officer and a defense intelligence professional. He has operational experience in Latin America, the Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan. He served in leadership positions with 25th ID, uh, 25th Infantry Division. I always got to slow myself down and actually say the acronym because otherwise it just sounds too army and we lose everybody in the first three minutes. And uh, and third special forces group, of course. He was also a foreign foreign area officer. He served in Zagreb, Croatia. He served in Romania as the army attaché. He um, uh, okay, Rich, you have you have the best resume. I want to steal your resume, but it, it, it okay. He was the chief of the Central European branch, Eastern Europe, Eurasia Division for attaché operations in the Defense Counterintelligence and Human Intelligence Center. Deployed to Iraq as the senior human intelligence liaison officer, supporting a joint special operations task force. He's chief of the education. He was chief, sorry, I should say, of the education and training support branch at the Joint Military Attaché School at the Academy for Defense Intelligence. He has awards and decorations, including the Legion of Merit. Defense and Army Meritorious Service Medals, Special Forces Ranger Tabs, and a whole bunch of other awards. He has multiple master's degrees, multiple graduate certificates. He's published articles in Tropic uh, Lightning News, Defense Intelligence for Security Assistance Management Journal, the Military Intelligence Professional Bulletin, and of course, Havoc Journal. He is married with three sons, and all of them are currently serving on active duty in the U.S. Armed Forces in one capacity or another. Rich, I'm sure at some point you'll manage to get your life together. Thanks for coming on the show. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Chris. 
It's a real pleasure. I, I had to speed up and just like do my Mighty Mouth Machida like machine gun uh, rapid rapid fire to get through that resume. Otherwise, that would take them to half the show. It's a real pleasure to have you on, though. Um, Thank you very much. I can't much. wait to I get into it. it. No, absolutely. Likewise. And of course, riding shotgun with me today is Charlie Faint. Charlie <laughs> is an active duty Army intelligence officer. He's the deputy director of the Modern War Institute at West Point. He has previous assignments throughout special operations, including JSOC. Seven deployments, including in addition to operational tours in Egypt, the Philippines, and South Korea. Three master's degrees, currently a PhD candidate, executive director of the Second Mission Foundation, and owner of the Havoc Journal. Hi, Charlie. Hey, Chris. Glad to be back for another round with my good friend, Rich Lee. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're, you're setting us up for success with this. Um, uh, you know, I throughout these, the way, just a little inside baseball for everybody, the way this usually works is I'll kind of sort of pitch or throw out to Charlie an idea for the episode that week. And he basically has to go through the Rolodex in his mind and say, is there a guest who can speak to this with any sort of, if not subject matter expertise, uh, relevance? And and Charlie hits it out of the park every single time. Um, so to have Rich on to speak about what we're going to talk about today is a real treat. And uh, I, I should probably add that to your 20 bullet point resume, Charlie, you're also the <laughs> premier booker in the business for, for podcasting excellence. So there's that as well. Um, okay. So this week's subject, what do pipelines and rockets tell us about our enemies? So I'll set the stage a little bit here. We're going to take this in order. We're first going to talk about the colonial pipeline hack for those that may not be tracking it or may not be tracking it to the full extent. Uh, what happened was last weekend, we're recording this on May 15th, so last weekend, about May 8th or 9th, the Colonial Pipeline, which provides about half of the East Coast's fuel, was hacked by a group named Darkside. And it was an interesting attack for a lot of reasons, but probably the biggest reason was just the size of the target, the fact that they went after some part of the U.S. infrastructure that is so crucial that it's caused gas shortages and multiple other knock-on effects. What was what I'd like to focus on is what that attack actually tells us about our geopolitical enemies, which certainly Darkseid may be a part of directly, but also may indirectly be a part of. And I'll just touch on a couple of things that have come out, and then um, I'll throw it to you, Rich, to kind of dive into a bit deeper. So. Darkside, as far as we know, has been around since about last August. And that said, all the people involved were had appeared to have a lot of experience that went far past last August. But as an organization, it, it we start, first started to track it last August. And what was interesting about it was that uh, while there have been many, they call them anarchic targeting hacking groups that uh, attack certain institutions for profit. Um, and they, this happened a lot during COVID. There were attacks, cyber attacks on hospitals and things like that. Um, what was interesting is that when they generally try to extort money and and place a cyber attack that requires ransom to be paid, generally they uh, these hacker groups tend to keep low level targets enough that the that it won't attract too much attention and too much blowback. And it seems like dark side may have bitten off more than it could chew and that the pushback because it went after a geopolitical enemy was significant. It has now gone offline. 
it has it has uh disappeared oh hold on one second i have to interrupt this because i'm doing this from home and my son, if he can't watch Austin Powers on the phone, the, this entire operation and the weekly havoc as it exists will crumble and no longer exist. So hold on one second. Yeah, Certainly you hit, you hit play. Yeah, right. These these are the kind of I have my own little internal hacker here who just comes and derails me. Good segue. Okay. So, point being, the dark side um, now has um, receded from sight. And no one really knows why. Uh, the U.S. obviously is not going to say that it has done anything offensive to take Darkline offline. Um, but Darkline seemed, Darkside seems to have put out a um, on the dark web a bunch of directives to its affiliates. And I guess I should set that up. Sorry, I'm, I'm filibustering here a little bit, but I just want to make sure I cover all this. The way the dark side seems to operate is as an affiliate network. So it hosts, it's sort of like McDonald's. It has franchisees that it gives the logo, the design, the outlay and everything to, and gives them the malware. And then they can go target whoever they need to. So dark side is sort of the puppet master behind them. As a result, it keeps a level of plausible deniability between dark side and its affiliates because it's affiliate, it may or may not have full fidelity on who its affiliates are. So it might be working with a, Nations, another nation state, it might not. We really don't know. Um, point being, it has apparently given directions to its affiliates that they are now to uh, send. Let me make sure I get the wording right. They are supposed to give the victim of whoever they've been trying to hack, all their affiliates are supposed to offer their victims a key in return for cryptocurrency payments so that as a result, uh, their victims are no longer victimized and they can now get out of jail free essentially. And they've asked all their affiliates to basically shut down operations and then they've disappeared off the dark net. So something has happened that would seem to indicate that they bit off a bit more than they could chew. They were not prepared for an enemy nation state, uh, in this case, the United States to go after them. So that's where we're at with this. Rich, what do you think? What's your take on it? Yeah, well, I, I think that's a very interesting point, Chris. You know, w one of the things that I think this whole crisis has illustrated, and, and I'm actually, you know, I'm, I'm here in North Carolina right now, 67 as of yesterday percent or yeah, 67 percent of the gas stations uh, in this state are completely dry. I mean, this is a this is a significant event. And it's having a traumatic impact uh, on, you know, the the American way of life, so to speak. And and I think what it does initially and and really highlights is the fact that we and America have a very fragile uh, infrastructure ecosystem, and it's very vulnerable to attack. And and it's nothing new. We we have been um, trumpeting the fact that this is a vulnerability, uh, and that. You know, we need to do more to protect that critical national infrastructure. And this particular attack on the Colonial Pipeline is a prime example of that. And, you know, I think part of it rests the responsibility of, of 
providing the necessary security for this critical infrastructure rests with the companies themselves. Um, look, you know, it's very expensive to provide the necessary cybersecurity systems and programs and procedures in place to protect from this kind of attack occurring. And 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 frankly, I think you know a lot of companies do the risk assessment and they determine, well, you know, we're willing to assume some risk in this regard. But I, I think you know we've come to the realization this is the new this is the new norm. We have to prepare ourselves for these kinds of attacks and we need to ensure that we are doing what needs to be done at a national level and in the private sector to protect our critical infrastructure. And I think the fact that our, our affiliate, you know, the affiliates of um, Darkside have, have gone to ground um, could, could be indicative of a lot of things. Um, I, I certainly think that, you know, there, there could be a, uh, you know, sort of a sort of a, an advanced, persistent threat out there that is controlling uh, these proxies in this regard, and maybe they have, you know, they've probed and found out that they've they've touched upon a, a sensitive point, and perhaps there has been some retaliation we're not aware of, but uh, but I, I certainly think that you know this is um, this is just not a criminal organization acting on its own. That's, of course, my opinion. I have nothing to substantiate that, but kind of my thoughts in that regard. Yeah, no, it, it seems like a reasonable assumption. I want to stay with you for one second, Rich. So Colonial Pipeline, as I failed to mention before, did actually pay, pay I, I believe, right. like $5 million or something like that. So to your point about what private, what steps private companies should be doing, what do you think? Are you in favor of private companies paying these ransoms or is the juice not worth the squeeze? Well, I think what I, what I would prefer to see is these companies investing in programs and the procedures to to harden the targets. You know, and um, interestingly enough, my, my son is uh, in the army as a seventeen Charlie cyber operations specialist, and we've talked a lot about that. And you know, he said in order to play good offense, you have to play good defense first. And so we have to harden our infrastructure. We have to, you know, be, before we can necessarily take an offensive up uh, up against a, an adversary in the cyber realm we have to protect our own infrastructure networks first because whatever we do to them they will attempt to do to us so i think what we should do and what i would like to see you know these companies take this threat seriously and and i'm sure many of them do uh but invest in the resources necessary to uh ensure that they've, they've got the systems in place uh, and the capabilities in place to protect themselves because i think what's going to happen is if if it isn't done and these kinds of disruptions continue uh you know we, because it is critical national level infrastructure, we're going to have to, the government's going to get involved and we don't want that to happen. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's, I, I think there's so much to unpack with this, Charlie, I'm going to throw it to you, but I want to also point out one of the kind of, again, I'm not a cyber expert. I don't know if any of us would consider ourselves cyber experts, but to me, I was really impressed with Dark side's operation. Uh, apparently, this is more common in the hacking community nowadays than it used to be. But they act very professional. They mm -hmm. uh, these digital extortionists. They have a mailing list. They have a press center. They have a victim hotline so that the people that they're extorting can call and get their questions answered in a timely manner. Uh, they have a supposed code of conduct that's supposed to spin the group as uh, you know, kind of being reliable. That hey, if and, and they make a point of saying up front. We're not trying to break you. 
as a business. We want you to continue to survive and thrive. So we've done our research um, and we know what you can afford to pay. And from what I've heard um, in the different articles I've read, that's supposed to be the magic of dark and the, and the unique special sauce that's made Darkseid so unique in the hacking community is their intelligence network. They know who to mm-hmm. ask for. They know how the companies are set up. They know what they can afford to pay, and they make sure they stay under that limit so that they they're basically announcing themselves as a parasitic entity that wants Mm -hmm. to feed off of this host body indefinitely. So Charlie, with that as the context, what what do you think? I mean, what are the ramifications? How do you read this? What's your take? I think it sends a definite message that that we're not prepared for this type of thing. And I I couldn't help but think when Rich was talking about the fuel shortages down in North Carolina and how that's, that's basically, it's an invented crisis. That was panic. There was no shortage of supply if people had just gone about their normal days instead of trying to fill up plastic bags full of gasoline and all other kind of crazy things, everything would have been okay. So this, this hack happened. The, the the pipeline shut down their pipeline on their own just out of an abundance of caution and and people started panicking and we had an article on havoc journal just a day or two ago about how gasoline has become the new toilet paper likening it mm. to the toilet paper crisis that the entire world experienced people weren't pooping themselves more when when covid broke out so why are people buying toilet paper well they there's a fear of missing out they're buying it all up same thing with this gasoline so now rich can't drive to piggly wiggly uh, because someone's bought up all the gas and they got it stored in the back of their of their Honda Civic, which but, is a um, UN certified human rights violation. <laughs> right. that it it ought to be it ought to be a war crime, in my opinion. <laughs> so, but yeah. but Charlie's absolutely right. I, we witnessed it firsthand. You know, uh, Monday night, my wife and I were coming back. We we decided we want to get ice cream late in the evening because that's what retired people do now. <laughs> so, um, and you know, we went by this gas station and it was just tons of people lined up and this is like nine o'clock at night and so you know i just kind of flip it trained observer that i am i'm like oh you know it must be giving away free gas or something well little did i know i should have done some research <laughs> but this was on monday and by the next day at noontime uh probably close to 80 percent of the gas stations in and around uh jacksonville swansboro area of north carolina where i was at were, were completely out of fuel and it was exactly as charlie described it was it was panic uh, you know, people were hoarding. Uh, I happened to be in the Home Depot at the time. I saw a gentleman carrying four or five gallons, you know, jugs of, you know, so he could get gas. But understandably, you know, it might be necessary for his livelihood. I got it. But uh, yeah, I, I think people tended to uh, to react in um, in a sort of panic fashion, and that really exacerbated an already tenuous situation. For sure, and I think. So just to, for one second to dwell on the domestic implications of this, obviously this week, uh, uh, Energy Secretary uh, Jennifer Granholm was asked, uh, you know, how severe this attack was. And um, she said, well, we've, you know, expedited having trucks bring fuel to the Southeast to replenish what, what Colonial hadn't been able to provide through their pipeline. And she said, but obviously, you know, a pipeline is the best way to do this, which of course immediately made Many people sit up and go, then why the hell did the Biden administration cancel the Keystone Pipeline, which was going to be another pipeline running from Canada to the United States that would have offered another workaround, yet more fuel on hand uh, through another pipeline? 
just without we can talk about the domestic political aspects of this, but I also think just on a practical level, do we need to be building more pipelines? Forgetting about the cyber hardening of our target, maybe just on the energy cons- uh, consumption hardening of that target, we just need more pipelines in general, do we not? Well, I I'm not a pipeline expert. Uh, I I understand the the the, pol- the politics behind a lot of this, but what what I think we need is just. Uh, more information control uh, at the individual level. I'm not talking about government information control. I'm talking about people thinking through problems and making logical decisions instead of reacting to the media all the time. Because again, this this was a big deal. This this thing was hacked and, and there was a fuel shortage, but the fuel shortage happened because people panicked. So I would like to see a hardening of individual resolve uh, in addition to a hardening of our infrastructure. And just people just not re- reacting to the, the panic of the moment and creating artificial shortages when, when they don't need to exist, Chris. You know, Charlie, we, we should have that. We should have you repeat that quote and then frame it. And you probably we can you break that out in almost every crisis that you and I talk about on this show. Because I, I think it, it, so much of this can be mitigated by better individual decision making. Um, let's find somebody to blame, though. So Darkside, apparently the malware is built to conduct language checks on their targets, and it auto- the malware automatically will not work if it detects Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Armenian, Georgian, Kazakh, Turkmen, Romanian, or any other geopolitical uh, you know, kind of former Soviet uh, dialect, and then the malware won't work, which obviously would point the fingers that this is – if not an actual entity of Russian intelligence or the Kremlin itself, uh, certainly is, might be based in Russia. And President Biden said that he's going to call on the Russian government to stop harboring cyber criminals. So we kind of have maybe a Taliban al-Qaeda kind of dynamic, or maybe it's since things in Russia seem to be very incestuous, uh, it may very well be that the Kremlin is actively involved in this and has just created a bunch of cutouts uh, to create some plausible deniability between them and Darkseid. Is is it fair, Rich, for us to place blame on Russia? Is it too soon? Do we not know enough? Uh, where do you stand on that? Well, I, I think we have to be cautious about pointing the finger at, at anyone. I think you know, there is certainly evidence that would suggest that there was, you know, this advanced persistent threat out there from, you know, a, a nation state or a very capable adversary that um, is responsible for this attack and other attacks. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of, as we talk about sort of the great power competition that's going on, I, it's kind of reminiscent of what we saw during the Cold War. You know, we fought the Cold War in large part through proxies, through mercenaries, through guerrilla armies, through, uh, you know, uh, it's it's sort of the same sort of thing occurring now, but instead of using mercenary groups and guerrilla groups and terrorist groups, we're, we're employing a little more sophisticated groups such as, you know, criminal cyber elements and, uh, non-state actors and and very sophisticated methods to sort of uh, you know exercise you know power and influence in this this new uh, great power competition that we're in. So I, I would be hesitant to to point it uh, you know directly at Russia. I, my my personal opinion is I I think they certainly had a hand in it. Um, I, I think they're certainly you know, capable. I, I, I would find it incredulous to believe that there are criminal elements that are operating in Russia that aren't 
somehow under the sway or influence of of the Russian government, uh, I, I would be really surprised if not a, a direct connection, it's certainly an indirect connection to them. So, so um, let's rabble rouse a little bit. If let's assume that we had enough of a smoking gun, maybe not for the public to know, but on on uh, you know those with the appropriate clearance had really good fidelity that Russia is behind this. Let's say again, we're stipulating this is a hypothetical. Um, if that were the case, what should be our response? And bearing in mind that we're looking at attacks that cripple our infrastructure. That whether or not, you know, leaving aside the issue of personal responsibility and what individuals could do to mitigate or exacerbate the situation. Um, when we're talking about something that can cripple us so significantly, at what point, and actually, let me, let me phrase this in even a bigger context. We had the Chinese government conduct the OPM at, uh, hack back in 2014. Um, we, we've had different attacks occur in the past that we've attributed to foreign entities. And at what point do those hacks become a casus belli? Do they become a cause for war? Do they say, Hey, you know something Taliban Al Qaeda, man, if you're harboring these guys, if it's you, or if you're harboring them, it's a distinction without a difference. We're going in and because we can't have you guys messing with us like this. At what's the, what's the tipping point for us to actually go? Yeah, we, we need we need to to go after this in, in a militant way. Charlie, what's your thought? Well, I think right now I, we ought to be grateful to whoever did this because this was this was a major attack, but it was one small attack on our infrastructure that got everybody's attention. So now people are paying attention to it, and instead of a coordinated attack that could cripple the entire country, it was largely regionally located, and again, it would have sorted itself out if people hadn't gone into a panic over it. And Chris, you said something in the beginning of the episode that I wholeheartedly agree with about uh, dark side potentially biting off more than they could chew. I don't think they expected the pipeline folks to go public with this. I thought, cause everyone likes to keep it hush hush. And then the pipeline was like, Hey, we're going public with it. And we're shutting down our pipeline and this panic ensued. I'm sure they're like, Oh crap. And then I read in the New York times just before we went on air about how, uh, a bunch of their money disappeared out of their digital wallet. Now, I like to think that someone in the, the uh, white side hacker, maybe it was Rich's son, <laughs> went in there and <laughs> and hacked them and got that money back because now that's the reason they 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 closed up shop. They're like, oh crap, our money's gone. Okay, we're out. So I don't know what happened, and and maybe we'll never know. But I like to think that they somebody did something about this about this uh, organization, and now they're. Uh, Dark side has gone away, but there's too much money in this, and I expect they'll just kind of rebrand under a different name again using the the Al Qaeda model. Hey, we're not we're not Al Qaeda anymore. Now we're, yeah. we're we're something else. Right. So I I think that right now we just ought to be grateful and and do something about it. I hope they have hearings. I hope we we start hardening up, and I hope that the pipeline pays a price for what happened. I hope they get fined or something to make sure that that other businesses are incentivized to make sure that they harden their systems up so something like this can't happen. Charlie, you're you're lodged firmly in reality and I'm I'm <laughs> and that's incredibly disappointing to me because I'm I'm going to I'm going to go to Rich and try to go uber theoretical here. So again, you're you I, I totally agree and and we I want to come back to that because you're obviously bringing up 
great points that I do want to drill into. Um, but staying with the theoretical construct, Rich, what do you think? What do, at what point do we do we go? Hey, if you came and, and attached bombs to our pipeline and blew it up, we'd consider that an act of war. Um, at what point? And, and forget about dark side, but just in theory, anybody doing this or anybody that hosts an entity that does this, at what point do they get real world punishment um, in the form of you know Blackhawks swooping down on them? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question, Chris. You know, I, I kind of fall back on my old Cold War analogy, and maybe that's because I'm I'm a Cold Warrior at heart. You know, I, I think there there are no limited tactical nuclear strikes that don't escalate into something bigger, and it's yeah. the same with cyber. Uh, I think once we use that option, uh, you know, it, it will be an all-out onslaught against you know against both sides and so it's it's a it is a mutually assured destruction on both sides and and perhaps that's what has kept us at this point from you know uh, certain actors not you know pushing the envelope to see just how far they can go with this and and this is like and I agree with Charlie I think this is a, uh, hopefully this is a wake up We'll see. I think the jury is still out to see whether or not people are really going to take this seriously or, you know, two weeks from now when everybody's gas tanks are full, we go back to business as usual and, you know, our sense of collective responsibility to each other goes out the window and we're back to where we are. So, uh, you know, I know there are some very bright and very talented people that are in the Department of Defense and, and in our intelligence agencies that are working uh, very diligently to ensure our protection of of our DoD and our and our government in- infrastructures, but but I think there also is a responsibility again going back to the the, the private sector to do their part as well. Yeah, for there, sure. Yeah, sorry, Charlie. Go ahead. Uh, there are all kind of things we can do short of war, also. And I was just yeah. thinking when we were talking just now, uh, Rich and I were in Iraq together with the task force, kind of the height of the the IED incidents that were fostered by Iran. We all knew they were doing it. We knew who was doing it. But we couldn't do a whole lot about it. And they, they were actually killing people, killing our friends on the regular. And look how long it took us to get Soleimani. So I like to think that our government is getting after these folks somewhere, somehow. Maybe we are stealing their money. Maybe we're freezing the bank accounts. Maybe we're getting them arrested. So maybe not warfare in the traditional sense, but we all know we're, we're entering a brave new world. We got a space force now. We got a cyber command. These things didn't exist when Rich and I worked together uh, back in the day. So I think we probably are doing something to get after these guys. And especially now, after this huge public event, the the administration, any administration would have to do something meaningful about these folks. So I'm interested to see what that's going to turn into, Chris. Yeah. And and, and whether or not we ever know, uh, because maybe this all, as you said, Charlie, this might all be done um, out of sight, but that classic, you know, do you exploit? Do you neutralize? Do you just mitigate? How do you handle these these questions? Yeah. It, it's it, it will be interesting for whoever it is that gets the uh, it gets visibility on it to be able to track that and find out. I want to the one final thing I just want to make about this. What in the reading I did, what seemed to be coming out was that cyber, the the one of the biggest challenges in deterring cyber attacks is attribution. That is so difficult to know who is behind mm-hmm. what. Great um, point. And and so who do you actually target? Who are you going after? Whose behavior are you trying to influence? Um, so that's why, for my money, uh, just to clarify, as much as I'm a neoconservative, I'm not necessarily looking to start wars where there don't need to be wars. But I do think uh, geography might be one of those cases where um, 
if, as you said, war is a last resort, but at least as far as knowing whose behavior we have to influence, if we can limit that to at least geography and go, well, who's the government there? Then let's influence their behavior and let them be the lead detective on this case. And if it is them and they're doing a cutout, then great, they get hammered. And if it's not them, then they're on the case. Um, that might be one way of going after it. There's also, and I, while you guys were talking, I was trying to Google this. I can't remember the term, and I'm sure it's going to come to me five seconds after we end the podcast. But um, <laughs> there's a term in the Constitution, and again, uh, I wish I could remember where, but I can't right now. Maybe you guys will. But there is a um, provision in the Constitution, uh, an anti-piracy provision that said the government can deputize and it's something uh, it's something of mark uh letters of mark letters of mark hmm. i think there we go and it talks about letters of mark provisions which essentially allow our government to uh you know create bounty hunters where there weren't any and say hey we'll give you letters of mark you are essentially deputized to go after a certain specific problem set that our government may not be equipped to do and i bring that up only because uh, Rich, as you're saying, you're your son being a 17 Charlie, and I know there's been so many struggles in DOD and in the IC in general um, to find suitable cyber uh, professionals to go after these people. I think there's an interesting question there about awarding letters of mark uh, to American citizens that just want to have fun on the weekend and go after some uh, – some bad guys and, you know, be awarded letters of mark to go do that, kind of subcontracting that out to the general populace. So in between whatever they're doing on switch, they can turn around and decide to take down, you know, some, some bad juju in the cyber world. What do you guys think about that? I'll throw this as the last question on the cyber piece. I like that idea of the, of the privateers, but I worry about the unintended consequences. So we've, we've all worked with the task force and we all know that sometimes you have a line on a good target, but either he's an idiot or, and, and you want him to keep screwing up or that sure. if you whack the dude, you don't get that, that pipeline information anymore. So I, I wonder if, if there's a bunch of 19 uh, year old privateers hacking away out there and they, they dork something up that we're working on, or they, they hit something they shouldn't, if they hit the equivalent, if they hit Gazprom, for example, uh, then that might be uh, a little bit, uh, more of a problem so um, it would be it would be point. great to see it would be great to see what happens i i think we got a we got a pretty good cyber force and in fact i'm thinking about a, a guy you should have later on in the show chris i'll talk to you about him afterwards who did a lot of this as a marine um and, and has a, a very interesting background so yeah i think we could we could Wait, probably- Char- charlie i'm sorry i gotta interrupt you i thought we had a rule though no, no smart Marines on the show. Do you already agree on this? We, we can't, we can't be doing that. Hey, com- com- comparatively, comparatively, okay, smart for a Marine. No, well, he's, if, he's, if he's cyber, he's already, he's already head and shoulders past me. So, um, yeah. I'm, I'm already feeling threatened. So, right. <laughs> well, when I tell you the rest of his background, I don't want to go into it right now because if I went into his background, he'd be very easy to identify, and I don't want to mention it before we we uh, gotcha. have him on the show. But um, yeah, in in. Uh, I think that our government probably does a good job on this. And again, I would love to find out later, uh, even if it's a, with a wink and a, and, a, and a shrug, that our government, somebody's government actually did hack these guys and got Colonial back their money uh, and now is, is going after them in court. And that's what I'd like to see. For sure. For sure. Yeah. 
Sorry, Rich, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say, Chris, you know, you touched on an interesting idea, though, you know, the the idea of sort of mobilizing an auxiliary that is, you know, under, uh, you know, not just kind of freelancing like doing whatever they want to do, but but somebody who is under control of specialists who can, you know, who can provide just, you know, sheer numbers and resources to apply to a problem set, that, that has some merit, I think. And, uh, you know, I, you look at our adversaries, they certainly do it with their troll farms and some of the other, you know, uh, groups of of young motivated people uh, that they're easily influenced into, you know, participating what they see as an important, you know, endeavor. Uh, yeah, maybe there is some possibility of looking into that and leveraging some of those resources. Totally. And, and uh, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of areas to mine out of that. And Charlie brings up a great point about, we don't want to mess up our own lines of effort uh, by doing that, right. by having some sort of command and control over that. So we have the ability to exploit and neutralize and, plus up and have an auxiliary and uh, yet keep our, our, our lines from getting crossed, I think is uh yeah, it sounds like a great job for somebody. Um, all right, guys. So on that note, let's shift gears now into the other major news story of the week, which I think may have some similar threads, which obviously is everything going on in Israel. So I'll level set just to start with, um, and I won't go back to 1948. Let me say that. But the bottom line is uh, Hamas began firing rockets into Israel. Um, the the pretext of it, and I think it's fairly universally seen that this is just a pretext, was a lawsuit that has now is now with the Israeli Supreme Court uh, to determine the status of, I believe it's six homes in Gaza and this is this case has been going on for literally somewhere around 50 years because it's a land issue and it's about certain rights and things have gone back and forth and anyway the point being that was just a pretext and the fact that there was no resolution yet was was just the 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 sliver of pretext that Hamas needed to start firing rockets charlie i want to pivot to you because you have been to Israel, which makes you much more of an expert on it than I am. But I also want to tap into you about what the real reason is why Hamas started firing these rockets. Yeah. So like you said, I've, I've been to Israel a time or two. I think I've been eight times uh, starting in 1998 when I was a lieutenant in 101st. We did a six-month peacekeeping tour in Sinai back when uh, Egypt and Israel were getting along really well. So we got to go to Israel a couple times then. And then five years in a row went with a joint West Point Yale study trip over there, which is called PDLI, which is an amazing thing we'll talk about uh, hopefully on another show, Chris. And of course, most... Um, I won't say most. A lot of what we see when we're over there is the Israeli perspective, but we were able to go down to Gaza, down to Starot, which is one of the places getting rocketed and mortared pretty heavily right now. We were able to go into the West Bank at a couple places. The Yale students and my wife, the year that she went, got to go to Ramallah, which is the head of Fatah's headquarters in the West Bank, and got to deal with a lot of the Palestinian side as well. So it's a, it's a complicated situation. And one of the things that we've talked about before, Chris, I think we talked about this when I was over at your house for dinner, the horseshoe theory of politics where the extremes are much closer to each other than the middle. And I couldn't help but notice how the the extreme uh, uh, Jewish perspective and the extreme Palestinian perspective were much closer to each other than the moderates on both sides. And what we're seeing right now are 
is some of that extremism coming to the fore. And there's a lot of things going on right now. You had the end of Ramadan, you had Jerusalem Day, you had a fire started on the Temple Mount, you had the Israelis going into the Al-Aqsa Mosque to get after the rioters, and then you had a mosque shooting thousands and thousands of rockets. It's, it's incredible how many rockets were getting shot up. And a lot has been made recently about the Iron Dome system, which is pretty amazing. It's assisted by our foreign aid and, and our technology, but it's Israeli managed. And uh, I always wondered what would happen if hundreds or thousands of rockets got shot because it, they shoot two interceptors for every rocket that they shoot at to, to make sure it comes down. And of course, they don't shoot at every rocket. They're able to use their Firefinder radar. I, I don't know what they call this, what we would call in the U.S. And they can compute almost instantaneously, okay, this is going to land in the middle of the desert. We're not going to shoot this one down. We're just going to let it go. <clears throat> but when you shoot, put so many up, even if they intercept 90%, 90% of, uh, of, two, of 2,000 rockets, you get a, you know, a couple hundred that come down in places that, that matter. And that's what we're seeing right now. So I, I, I've been reading in the news. I, I'm, I'm a little unclear about all the details of what's going on. It looked like uh, Israel was going to go into Gaza heavy, but it looked like that was a feint to get the fighters to come out where they could target them. So very interesting things going on right now, but it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard to see some of the reactions to it. You got a, you got a terrorist organization who's shooting thousands of missiles indiscriminately into populated centers of Israel. And they're being supported by people who think Israel is having a disproportionate response. And I, I can't help but think, um, you know, Princess Bride style, I don't think you know what that word means. You keep using disproportionate, but I don't think you understand the the nature of warfare, what what the what the Hamas folks are doing. And it is tragic for the people down in Gaza, but I don't know what the Israelis could be doing differently right now. I think they're showing a lot of restraint and there's a lot of anger on both sides. And I hope uh hope they can get it straight here soon, Chris. So, Charlie, um, I should have set you up better on that because uh, I want to dive into almost everything you just said. Uh, but the one thing I also really wanted to set the stage with was the election piece about Fatah um, having been in power yeah. now for about 15 years and an election coming up. And Fatah wanted to cancel the election. And uh, this is a pretty good way of doing that, uh, firing rockets, getting everybody riled up and cementing a bit more of a political base. Uh, tell me about that. How far off am I in that? Yeah, so. I, I think you're, you're on the right track there, Chris. And I just want to make sure for our audience understands that this is my perspective and, and not a position of West Point or the government or anybody else's. So, so uh, Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, uh, has been in power far in excess of his term. I think he was elected in 2005 for a four-year term. He's been in power for 15 years. But I'm okay with that, and I'm going to explain why, because that might be shocking to some people listening. Uh, the reason that I'm okay with Abu Mazen being in power is because the alternative is worse for America, because it's going to be way worse for Israel um, if if they had elections. The reason he called off elections, to keep calling off elections, is he knows he's going to lose, and he's going to lose big, and he's going to lose big to Hamas. And that's what happened down in Gaza. Fatah used to control both Gaza and the West Bank, but they had elections down there, and Hamas seized power, and the first thing they did was they they murdered uh, senior Fatah members and forced them out into West Bank. Then they started digging terror tunnels and started shooting missiles, etc. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the West Bank. If there are elections, Hamas is going to win. They're going to murder everyone in Fatah that, that doesn't go over to their side. And you're going to have thousands of missiles coming from uh, the West Bank into Israel, which is way closer to Jerusalem, obviously, as Jerusalem's right there in the West Bank. And uh, their airport's closer, Tel Aviv's closer, everything's closer. So, uh, 
to prevent that, Israel is going to have to go in heavy, and it's going to re- re- resolve <clears throat> result in even more destruction and deaths of Palestinians. So I get why why uh, Abu Mazen doesn't want to relinquish power, and I'm okay with that because the consequences are going to be worse, even though he's a dictator and and he's not holding elections for his people. So that's kind of where I am on that, Chris. So, Rich, I want to ask you. Um, this is obviously my 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 overriding interest in this episode is tracking these not small incidents but uh tracking these incidents as they are to even larger kind of great game style uh geopolitical maneuvering and the first thing that jumps out at me with this barrage of rockets that Hamas is raining down into Israel is how many of them are funded by Iran and this is happening concurrently with us under the Biden administration resuming talks with Iran, loosening up money for Iran, and kind of giving them I, – I don't know if there's a stick involved, but there's definitely a lot of carrots involved that we seem to be giving Iran as far as freeing up billions – I think it was 72 point something billions uh, for Iran. And now Iran is uh, – who has been a sponsor of Hamas forever – um, is now uh, now Hamas is raining these rockets down. Is there a connection? Am I overthinking it? What's your read on it? How responsible is Iran in behind all this? No, I think Chris, you're right. Uh, clearly, there there is a connection there. You know, Hamas has always been you know strongly connected with Iran, and clearly, you know, Iran is a uh, is an advocate for supplier of Hamas. Um, you know what I what I find interesting about the whole thing is there's this connection that seems this conflict is spreading beyond just the borders of the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. You know now we have Turkey that is saying, "Hey, you know we need to teach Israel a lesson." And and even recently I read something where uh, I guess. Putin at one of his national security meetings recently, you know, sort of sided with Turkey. So, you know, I, I think you, you're seeing this conflict has uh, it, it has the potential to to engulf many other countries and become a much broader, much more complex uh, crisis uh, if it continues the way it's going. And so, yeah, there. You know, there is certainly the Iran connection, but now we have the Turkey connection, we have the Russian connection, we have the U.S. connection. You know, there there are many players, and and fundamentally, all of these countries are seeking to pursue their own strategic interests, uh, and and that's the you know we have to just come to the realization that 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 is in fact the 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 underlying motivation behind what any nation does is to protect their own strategic interests, and I think that's what we're seeing playing out here. I just think, you know. What I would, I just like to throw this out there. One of the things that I, that has kind of struck me is that, you know, in the, you know, the past decades, we always saw peace between Israel and the Palestinians as a as an important foreign policy objective for the United States. You know, there was Camp David, there were the Oslo Accords. Right. It seems now that this conflict has just nobody is willing to really make a concerted effort. To try to resolve this at a meaningful level, and and you know it's very complex, and I understand, but it's almost like, you know, where are the great, you know, peacemakers and leaders who are willing to to try to to come to terms with this conflict and solve this conflict, or, uh, you know, I, I just we just don't seem to see that much anymore, and and you know it's more about 
mitigating uh, the the crisis than trying to solve the crisis. And uh, I I will uh, readily own to not being um, impartial in this uh, from everything I've read, and it's only reading. I have no experience in this, but I am I refuse to see how Israel could do more than it has done. There have been five times that it has offered a two-state solution to Palestine, to the Palestinians. Um, It has been rejected resolutely every time. And um, when you're, when Hamas's motto is, you know, essentially to kill all the Jews and I'm butchering it because I can't remember verbatim, but it's essentially that. Um, Right. And I, it's very hard to to find negotiations with somebody who is in a zero sum I kill you um, game. If somebody just wants to kill you, it's very hard to negotiate with them. And I think there there's a a certain point that the West is going to have to realize this isn't um, this doesn't have many parallels in the rest of the world. Uh, usually, uh, you know, uh, Israel has bent over backwards. It has given, gave the Sinai Peninsula, um, you know, back to, or to to the Palestinians after 1967. I think they gave it back in 78 to the Egyptians. Um, sorry, to the, the Egyptians, Egyptians, right? Right, and um, thank you, Charlie. Yeah, and uh, you know, Israel has consistently agreed to any third party that has offered a two state solution. The, the problem is that doesn't seem to ever be what the rulers, and I want to stipulate, the rulers of whoever's calling themselves the Palestinians want. Yep. I, I think rank-and-style well Palestinians might. but And I, I'm going to throw another piece out here uh, for Rich, for you to react to, because you brought up Iran and Russia and Turkey having a role in this. I think it's important to note on a positive note, who isn't playing a role? in this situation right now. Saudi Arabia, hmm. UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Sudan, all of the countries that were involved in the Abraham Accords, or in Saudi Arabia's case, they weren't involved in the Abraham Accords, but they've made over uh, very peaceful, uh, pacifying overtures with the Israelis in the last few years. The Sunni countries, leaving Turkey out of it, um, are essentially opting out of this. They're like, no, we're good. We've signed these agreements with Israel, and you know something? Screw Iran. Let the Shias, Shias feel, this, feel this out and figure out what they need to do, but we're not going to keep getting involved in this or putting our finger on the scales. We're going to let – we have Israel's back, and in this case, that really just means silence, and we're not, gonna, we're not stirring up the Muslim street on behalf of this chaos. How important or how irrelevant is that, Rich? No, I think you're absolutely right, Chris. It is very relevant. You know, it shows that uh, there is the possibility of positive diplomatic relations between these countries in the Arab world with Israel, that, that, that they can co- coexist, uh, they can have cooperative agreements. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it is significant and it shows a, a positive trend uh, with the countries in the region that um, – that, that's important. So I agree with you in that regard. And I want to drill into one other thing. And Charlie, I'll, I'll throw this to you because I want to see if, if what you know about this or what you've read about this in the past. I was not aware of the Soviet involvement creating in the creation of the PLO and the PFLP, the Palestinian Front Liberation Party. Uh, George Habash and Yasser Arafat were 
um, agents, essentially, of the USSR. And I wonder, um, I, there were many articles written about how Arafat became a multimillionaire um, uh, up until his death, and his widow then worked hard to make sure she could secure the millions that he had made that nobody really knew where he got them from. Um, and I don't want to sound conspiracy theorist on this, but if there's a conspiracy afoot, sometimes it's not being a conspiracy theorist, it's being a conspiracy outer. And in this case, <laughs> um, the Soviet Union played a large role in this. And I wonder how much Russia now, without the Soviet Union, continues to play a role. Obviously, Putin is inserting himself into this. How much or how little do we need to tie any of this back to Russia? Yeah, so I'm not I'm not aware of the connection between the Soviets and the PLO. I think it's likely. I mean, they they had their fingers in all manner of pot, of pots back in the in the Cold War, and the PLO's tent was very large. It, there was a time sure. where where they they, they had a, a lot of people, a lot of Christians in the PLO, not just uh, what we naturally assume that it's all um, um, Sunni Muslims, but that makes sense to me. And and Russia has a very big interest in the region, right? Because it's right there by Syria. There there are lots and lots of Russian Jews in Israel. In fact, Chris, if you ever go there you'll see a lot of signs written in russian on the road mm-hmm. signs russian arabic english and uh, of course hebrew so yeah there's a lot of interest in there and it's in there also in their interest to keep america distracted with things like this because if you throw a little bit of money at it, you stir things up america is suddenly focusing on this and not on the sneakiness that russia is doing on i don't know say ukraine or something like that or hacking our our pipelines or, or God knows what else they're doing. So maybe they're involved. Maybe, maybe they're not. Uh, maybe Yasser Arafat was an agent of the USSR. I don't know anything about that. It's just as likely as anything else at this point, I guess. I'll link so, to some things that I saw in the show notes okay. uh, for everybody. Cause yeah, I, it was something that surprised me. Um, and I, I didn't know how common knowledge or not this is. Yeah, I don't I don't know either. I mean, Israel is is positioned right there with Egypt where the US and USSR were competing for influence. You got you got uh, right right there in the backyard of Iraq. It's not too far away from Iran. So yeah, there's a lot of a lot of interest in there and if any of our and any of our adversaries can stir things up and make things hot for Israel, which is you know so important to us in that for our interests in that region, I think they they would probably do that to help keep us distracted. And I'll I'll throw out one thing I saw yesterday afternoon. I believe uh, bombs are now hitting Israel from Syria, so that obviously mm-hmm. can implicate Iran and potentially Russia, um, you know, either or in, in 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 that region as well, which I thought was an interesting development. Yeah, and of course yeah. that's kind of, that's kind of fraught uh, for, for those. Israel, of yeah. course, has been very involved in the Lebanese and Syria borders. And Chris, the the, the couple times when we did that PD, PDLI trip, we went up to the the Gaza. To, I'm sorry, to the to the mountains up there, and we could look in from the heights, and we could see the war going on. Now it's off in the wow. distance. We're not we're not catching straight rounds. I mean, it's far sure, off. Sure, but you can hear the explosions. <laughs> Uh, up in the Gol- from the Golan Heights, um, you can see, you can hear the heavy machine gun fire. You can see the smoke coming. There's the war right there. It's on their doorstep, and I don't think a lot of Americans understand what it's like to live in those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, Israel is what size of New Jersey, 
And it's beset on most sides by people who really, really don't like him. I mean, it's got a little bit of a border with Egypt. Egypt's, Egypt's cool with Israel and has been for years, but everywhere else, it's, it's kind of tough. They're in a bad neighborhood. So they have to live and, and comport themselves in a way that, that we don't always understand from the safety of our, our gaming headsets on a Riverside um, uh, podcast that we're doing. No, for sure. Um, I wonder because we've been down this path so many times with Israel and the Palestinians. uh, I think it was Eli Lake wrote a piece in the New York times or somewhere else. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, but um, wrote a piece saying, I I think the only way to peace is for Israel simply to occupy everything. Um, And, and I, and at this point I'm inclined to agree. I don't think many people had on their bingo uh, sheets that that we, Israel will be able to sign the Abraham Accords with as many countries as it did in the last few years. Mm-hmm. I think that was a surprise, but it shows that these things can happen. Um, peace is possible, but um, maybe the best way to deal with a troll is to eliminate the troll after 60 years of, of trying almost every other way to do it. Is that irresponsible or, or is that um, is there some logic to that? So I, I think it's totally logical, and I used to think that as well, but I, I'm going to tell you why I don't think so much anymore. So the uh, the 20% of Israel are, are Arabs, and most of them – well, I won't say most of them. The, most of the ones that I met, which is a limited sample size, admittedly, are quite happy to be is, uh, Arab Israelis. They don't want to be Jewish. They want to be Arab Muslim Israelis, but they also don't want to go to Palestine, because they know they've got it well there. Because I asked them, it's like, hey, would you go to Ramallah and live there instead? They're like, no, man, it, it, I don't, I don't want to do that. But the, um, it's hard to, for Israel to say that, hey, we're a, dem- a Jewish democratic state when they're occupying uh, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, and they're they're keeping such a tight lockdown on Gaza. So I think it, it would be. It would make a lot of sense for Israel to, um, to keep encouraging a two-state solution because Israel, being a, a democracy, doesn't want six, seven, eight million more Palestinians citizens in their borders. It is in their interest to create uh, to, mm-hmm. to create a a, a a state for the Palestinians. However, it's got to be a functional state. You don't want a dysfunctional t- state in your backyard, and it's really hard for me to see how Gaza and the West Bank with Fatah and Hamas that want to kill each other can be a functional state. What I think I'd like to see is Gaza get reabsorbed into Egypt, but Egypt doesn't want that problem. Gaza gets re- re- uh, reabsorbed into Egypt and the West Bank becomes a Palestinian state and not based on the 1967 borders. That, that ship has sailed. What's the reality on the ground today? And the Israelis have been quite content to do land swaps in the past which they don't have to do. They, they took that land the same way uh, every country has in the course of uh, civilization. They, they seized it by force. It's theirs now as far as the world is concerned. But I, I would like to see a separate state for the Palestinians. As an American, I'm all about self-determination. If they don't want to be part of Israel, okay, have your own state. But it's got to be a functional state. And functional states don't shoot thousands of missiles at the citizens of their neighbors. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out, Chris. Yeah, and I think I think their sponsor. I mean, as I, 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 I'm not simply trying to be academically cute by by 
trying to tie this back to Iran or Russia. I, I just think in so many respects, the Palestinians have no ability for self-determination precisely because of who their sponsors are. They're too valuable as um, a, a fifth column for Iran or for if, if Russia has its tentacles still uh, attached to them. I, I just think they, they're, they're, they're too valuable in that capacity. Uh, nobody has a vested interest uh, on that side of the ledger in having them be stable. Rich, I, I want to yeah. ask you. So let me let me look at this through the other end of the telescope, and then we'll we'll move off this. But why not why not just cut ties with Israel? What, 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 what's the point? What, is this juice worth the squeeze? I mean, yeah, we have military contracts with them and all that. But look, if everybody's going to troll us and and treat this as a great game um, and think they can mess with us by messing with Israel, what's in it for us? Why is this? Why is the juice worth the squeeze? No, I, I think you know, as Charlie had mentioned, Israel is a key ally in the region. You know, we we have uh, connections to Israel. We have you know military and political, cultural connections with the state of Israel. Uh, perhaps even a a bit of a moral obligation to Israel. And you know, I, I think that uh, th- that is, I, I can never see an instance where the United States would renounce its relationship with Israel uh, in, in any circumstances. I mean, I think. That 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 connective tissue is just too too strong, uh, too vital, too important to our interests and to their interests. Uh, so you know, and look, Israel is a, is an ally of the United States, uh, but yet Israel has <laughs> had very high profile cases of espionage directed against the United States. There there have been instances where they have been an ally and a friend, but uh, you know, a friend with uh, <laughs> with certain caveats associated with that, and so. Uh, you know, in spite of even those difficulties, I can't see of an instance where we we would uh, we would back away uh, from Israel in favor of of any other ally or situation. I I, I agree, and I obviously was saying that in in a trolling sort of way because um, I, I don't <laughs> believe it, but I I think it's important to to throw it out there and have that answer clear because I think a lot of people if especially if they're new to this issue might just say why do we bother. Um, I'll also just point out in conclusion, I, I do think it's interesting uh, if one were to go and look at the FBI's hate crime statistics going back to the beginning of every year since they've tabulated hate crime statistics in this country, um, for all the sternum drang that we hear about different groups um, and the hate crimes promulgated against them, they are all and have been annually since hate crime statistics were tabulated in the United States, they are all dwarfed, and I mean dwarfed, by anti-Semitic hate crimes Mm -hmm. every single year. And I I want to say three or four to one uh, between the Jews and the next most uh, uh, violated, if you will, group. So um, I think that speaks to yet another reason why we – like to have Israel's back is the Jews have had a rough ride of it, mm-hmm. and they've well said. And unlike others, um, they haven't had they haven't dealt with those setbacks. <laughs> if you want to call the Holocaust a setback, which might be a, a fair understatement, uh, they haven't dealt with that with resentment, anger, um, nihilism. They've dealt with it by a sense of humor trying to build a democracy, trying to welcome in and be inclusive of people. Um, They have responded to it in a way – it's an underdog story um, 
that I I think our country, you know, see that's why we see a natural ally there because it's an underdog story of people that have handled adversity in such a noble way. Um, we cannot abandon them the way they've been abandoned at key in points in history. Yeah, yeah, I think agree a hundred percent. Charlie, any final words on Israel? No, I, I think that Israel, being friends with Israel is in our national interest, and that's that's why I'm supportive. It's been interesting that people, uh, in an accusatory way, say that I'm um, I'm pro-Israel. I'm pro-United States. I'm, that's how I've been from the very beginning, and I think Israel is, is the ally that we need in that region. If that changed, my opinion might change, but for now, um, you know, I— I hope all the people in that region can find peace and, and move along with self-determination. But until that happens, I, I know which side I'm, I'm going to be on personally. Again, not a position of, of anybody else, but I uh, appreciate you letting me talk about it. And I'm looking forward to getting back over there, hopefully this coming summer, again, with the uh, PDLI folks and and uh, seeing how the situation uh, changes and help these young people help, hopefully find the solution uh, long after we're all in, our, in, the, in the nursing homes and the rocking chairs. Maybe they can figure it out where we failed, Chris. Char- Charlie, when was the last time a, a West Point uh, professor was engaged directly in combat? When, when was the last time that happened? Oh, Would that be a first? If you, if you I, take rounds over there, <laughs> is that going to be the first time? Would you be, I, I, would you be setting setting the bar? Is that my it? days my days of doing that are over. I'll be going the opposite direction. Hey, and I'm, I, I think Hamas has something to say about that, though. No, I mean, you go over there, you might not have a choice. Well, the good news is it's in the Palestinians and the Israelis' interest to make sure that nothing happens to us while we're over there. So I, I imagine we probably have a little help. I'm super vigilant when we're over there. Unfortunately, uh, I'm kind of tall, so I can see what's going on. But I'm under I'm under no illusions of my ability to do anything. I remember the first time we went, one of the eight Yaleys asked one of the West Point cadets if we brought our guns with us, and which seems <laughs> I know it's so laughable to us. And 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 I said, well, what did you what did you tell them? And uh, she and the cadet was a female cadet. She said, uh, I I didn't know what to say. I was like, tell them tell them we did see what happens. <laughs> But of course we don't do that. We're, we're, you know, we, we're unarmed. We're tourists, just like anybody else. We're not there to cause anybody any problems and we've, we've never had any problems. So I, I look forward to talking about maybe when I, next time uh, I go, come back on the show and talk about that a little bit more, Chris. Oh, that'd be great. I'd love to hear about it. I don't know, Charlie, I think though, for the record, I think when you travel, I always think the, uh, the military model for when you're in civilians or as a civilian uh-huh. or in it with civilians, I think should be the Steven Seagal model from under siege that uh, I'm, I'm just a lowly little cook. That's all I am. I cook. And then you have to kill somebody with your bare hands or by manipulating the microwave so that the playboy model comes to you and says, I don't think you're just a cook. And you go, yeah, well, I also cook. And then, and then you get your line in and you save the day. I, I think that's the model that we need to strive for. Chris, you know, my, you know what my background is? I, I am just the, the cook. That's why, you know, when I was in Iraq, I was so happy to have someone like Rich around who's a former SF guy. Um, if I get in trouble, you know, I'm carrying ammo, but I'm carrying a lot of ammo, but that's for somebody else to shoot. You know, I, if, if uh, Charlie faints shooting his weapon at somebody, it's a bad day for everybody. You're trying. Uh, that, he's so, being humble, Chris. I've seen him shoot in Iraq. He's a pretty good shot. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, he also does intelligence. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That he does. He he does a pretty good job at that as well. So, <laughs> hey, so Rich, let's shift gears now. So, you wrote a piece recently mm. for Havoc Journal, Storm Surge, 
Special Operations Support yes, to the Hurricane sir. George Humanitarian Crisis. Tell us about this. So that was a great piece. I really enjoyed well, reading you. it. Well, well written. I thought it was a, uh, I always like it when Havoc Journal gets a little literary, but also shines a light on an aspect that other people might not be talking about a lot. Um, yeah. I loved it. Tell, tell us, what, what, why did you choose to write that? Where did that come well, from? Thanks, Chris, for the for the compliment. You know, so it, it actually uh, generated from a conversation I had with Charlie. Charlie was uh, said he was working on a book on special operations forces, and he had reached out to me and he had asked if I'd be interested in in writing something for that. And so I started thinking about it, and you know, I know Charlie has a a broad network of of friends and associates uh, who you know would probably write a lot about special operations forces and direct combat and so forth. So I thought, well, you know, one aspect that many people are not aware of is that you know special operations forces are deployed around the world uh, at any given time. We have special operations forces doing all kinds of things worldwide, and you know, maybe write something to show the role that they play in. In you know collateral activities, non-combat operations, humanitarian assistance. You know that's a doctoral mission for special operations forces. Not a lot of people know that. You know we have this perception that special operators are the door kickers, snatch and grab. You know the the stuff like that. But there there are a lot of men and women around the world who are working hard behind the scenes to make things happen. And so I had one of those experiences. Uh, you know I was a a new special forces company commander had deployed to Panama on some company training, um, had been in command about 60 days. All of a sudden, you know, I get contacted by the commander uh, at Sox South says, Hey, you need to get over here. Uh, so I, I show up at Corazal station and uh, they're like, yeah, you know, a hurricane just hit the Caribbean. It just devastated Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. You know, we've got forces in Puerto Rico, but we need eyes on the ground in the Dominican Republic to assess the situation and start helping with, you know, resolve this humanitarian crisis. And so uh, I was tasked to put together a team of six SF guys to form this, the, the core of this team, along with some uh, special operators out of Sox South. And uh, I, I wasn't intending to go with them, but at the last minute, the commander said, you know, I, I think we need to put some field grade <laughs> oversight of this operation <laughs> You know, major, you're going in with the team, and uh, and it was a it was a very interesting experience to be involved in something like that, and I, and I learned a great deal. And so, I just wanted to share some of that, you know, with the audience. And I guess Charlie liked it enough to to publish it in in the Havoc Journal, and uh, so that's I kind think, of the just. Yeah. No, I I think it's great. It was a really interesting story. I, Charlie, what did you think when you when you first read it? What was your first takeaway? My my first takeaway, I, I remember specifically, Rich used a word in there I'd never seen before. And I was like, what is this garbage? And it turned out that, what was it, Drop Sunday or something like that, yeah, Rich? Right? Because Rich, yeah. is, Rich is such a good writer. He's such an intelligent guy, and he worked at DIA for so long. Uh, one of the reasons I like getting articles from Rich Liebel, um, first of all, they're always very interesting. Second of all, there's almost no editing required whatsoever, which, which um, Mike <laughs> Warnock, who, who, who edits now, I mean, and this thing's four pages long. And the only thing that I noticed was this one word that I'd never seen before. And it's red underlined, you know, in word. I'm like, aha, I got him. And then when I looked it up, I'm like, no, actually, this is a real thing. So of course it was. Yeah. But uh, this is such a perspective that we don't see. And Rich has written other articles under a pseudonym. And I, obviously, I'm not going to mention what they are. Equally 
really well written and interesting, but he he doesn't like to talk about himself. He's a true special forces quiet professional. So it's hard to get him to talk about himself. And again, the only reason he did, he did this under his real name is because I asked him to. I was like, "Will you please give me a story from your book? You've had such a for the book. You've had such an interesting life." And he and he gave us this. And it's just, it is so unlike anything else that we have for this book. It is such an interesting perspective. And it's it's a side of SF, like, like Rich said, that nobody sees, nobody talks about, because there wasn't a Black Hawk Down incident in this. There wasn't uh, a, shoot up, a, a shootout involved in it. But it's the stuff that these quiet professionals all over the world do all the time. So I was grateful to have it for the book, Chris. Rich, let me ask Thanks, you, just, just on a human level, what did you see that experience mean for your team. Now, obviously this was in the nineties, so it wasn't like they were squeezing this in, in between rotations to Iraq or Afghanistan or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but just fitting it into their training cycle, or, I mean, even expanded for just from what you know, once the GWAT began, how do humanitarian missions affect an ODA or affect members? Does it, do they tend to internalize it in a more positive light? Does it deplete them more because is there, Hey, there's no, you know, proper adrenaline rush of combat or something. What's the takeaway from a commander's perspective? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there was immediate interest in this mission, you know, when, when it kind of circulated around, uh, we were operating out of Battery Pratt there that, hey, there was an opportunity to go do something real world. Uh, you know, the the teams and the leadership are all chomping at the bit to volunteer to do this. And and I, I think that, um, you know, the, the mission was an important one and and it, it fell in, in line with what I think are the real strengths of special forces in particular, but special operations in general, you know, it was an opportunity to have an impact, a significant impact to do important work, to apply the skills that, you know, we often talk about language capability and cross-cultural communication abilities of special operators. Well, they were definitely employed extensively in this regard. Um, And it gave them an opportunity to really refine some of those skills that I hope, and I, I feel confident uh, that, you know, I had left special forces in 2000 before 9-11. So I, I'm hopeful that the experiences that they gained from that uh, served and put them in good stead uh, in further combat operations down the road. And, and, I, and I'd like to believe that. And so, yeah, I think, you know, I, SF guys, <laughs> they're always going to look for an opportunity to, to, to get a piece of the action and get involved. And, and there was no shortage of volunteers in, in this regard. Yeah. I know I, I believe it. I believe it's a great piece. Um, we're obviously going to link to it in the show notes so people can check it out if they haven't read it already. Um, Charlie, we're totally on brand. We are completely over time, um, which is awesome. And Rich, take that as a compliment. Uh, that happens with the great Thanks. ones. So, uh, <laughs> so you guys are too kind. Appreciate it. No, listen, we appreciate it. And I think it's, uh, and it's more important to me to get the full context of everything than to, keep this uh, nice and tight for an hour, but it does remind me that we should pivot then to the veterans curation program. What can you tell yes. us about that? Thanks for the opportunity to, uh, to give a shout out to this program. So uh, last semester I was using my GI bill. I was involved in a, a, uh, 
public history historical preservation certificate program. Being a history buff, you know, it was just a natural fit. And in my class, there was a uh, a fellow Army veteran, a wounded warrior, and she was going through the program. And she was telling me about this veterans curation program that she had applied to and been accepted in. And so what it is, is the, uh, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers runs this program. And so, you know, the the Corps of Engineers has properties all over, you know, that they're responsible for, and they're constantly digging and excavating it. And whenever they come across something of cultural significance or historical significance, they have to preserve this stuff by by federal regulation. They just can't just plow it over. So they literally have tons of historical items that they have collected. And they're like, okay, what do we do with all this stuff? So they they have centralized it in these various warehouses, but they also have an obligation to you know, catalog and record what this is. So they have partnered with transitioning veterans to come in and help them with the, you know, the necessary skills required to, you know, do uh, photographic archival, uh, records keeping, documentation, uh, you know, all different types of things to help them record this stuff. But what what it also does is it affords these transitioning uh, service members uh, skill sets that they might not otherwise have. And so it's a, it's a program that you apply to. It's a paid program. It can be anywhere from uh, 20 hours a week to 40 hours a week. They pay $25 an hour for your services. They will help train you. They will provide you with these skill sets. And what she was saying to me about the program is that, you know, many of the, the transitioning transitioning service members, they, they're not necessarily interested in becoming archaeologists or, you know, public historians or historical preservationists. They're not sure which direction they want to go. And some of them may be coming from combat arms skills where they don't have things like database management, records keeping, a lot of the kinds of skills uh, that will be applicable elsewhere. And it's also an opportunity to network. So the Corps of Engineers brings these folks on gives them these opportunities, helps them with their resume. They go through this program anywhere from five to nine months. And then some of them, you know, parlay that into uh, a, a new career in uh, in public history and historical preservation. But a lot of them just take those skill sets and move on. So it's a really great program. I'd never heard of it. And if it hadn't been for her, I, I would have never known about it. Uh, I would highly recommend if veterans are interested to maybe uh, check out their website and, and apply to the program. It's a paid, it's a paid program. So- and is there certification that they get, or is it just the OJT, the on-the-job training that they pick up while they're there? There is some certification for some of the skill sets. I don't have all the detailed That's information okay. yeah. on that, but yeah, and and I know uh, one of the things that they do is they actually assist in in resume writing and providing network assistance, and and they have centers in um, Virginia, Georgia, California, I think. Texas as well. I'm not sure about that, but um, you go to one of these, and you know, one of these locations, and and you know, the Corps of Engineers getting some benefit out of it, and yeah. you know, the veteran is getting some transition assistance and some benefit and some money out of it. So, no, it's yeah, I think it's a great, it's a great, yeah. re- it, precisely, it's a brilliant program, and I'm just, I'm just surprised that the, you know, there's just so little information about it. Uh, I think the Corps of Engineers is trying to get it out there, but uh, I, you know. Maybe it should be part of TAP classes and things like that right, to let right. transitioning veterans know. Absolutely. And what? so when we talk about these historical artifacts that they discover, mm-hmm. what kinds of stuff have they come up with? Did, did she give you any idea what kind of things she, they stumble into? 
all, all kinds of different things. I mean, you know, artifacts from, you know, and uh, co-located to some of their properties, there are actual historical sites, archaeological sites from, you know, the, the 1800s. Some of them are, are Native American artifacts, uh, all of those kinds of things. And, um yeah, you know, and, and part of what they teach them is how to identify these things, you know, so they have to do this extensive database research to find out what is this thing, you know, it looks like a nail, but maybe it's not a nail. So it, it really hones their research abilities. And I can think, you know, there's probably dozens of jobs out there where, you know, somebody who could do that kind of detailed research uh, would be very much value added to a company. So absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, it, and if you're a history person, you know, they teach a little bit about, you know, historical archaeology and, uh, so always a kind of a cool thing. No, that sounds awesome. I'm really glad you brought that up. I love yeah, things like that. that, that information. Are, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have links to it in the show notes. So if you're listening, uh, we won't have Rich memorize a website address to spew <laughs> out right now. We'll, just look for it in the show notes. It'll be there. And um, yeah, please check that out. That sounds really interesting. Charlie, second mission. What's going on? What can we talk about? So I'm really excited about our books. I know I talk about that every show, but we're getting real close to The Hills coming out in, in June. And Armor of God, I'm loading up the final the final edits on that and getting that pushed out as well. I also want to give a shout out to my sister, Kathy. She's got a hold of one of these laser etchers and she's made us so much swag for Havoc and for Second Mission. And uh, both of you will get some of that coming your way. So Chris... I, I made the executive decision that everyone that comes on the show is going to get one of these things that that's Kathy's made for us. And mom and dad are coming uh, up here next next week, Chris. So I'd, I'd like to have you and Jane over so you can meet my mom and dad because they're the the, the, the leading funders, the sugar daddies, if you will, for a second mission. <laughs> um, and I'm very grateful for mom and dad for your, I know you're listening to the show. So for your support and Kathy, I uh, appreciate all the, the, the great stuff you're doing for, for both havoc and second mission. And last thing I want to say, Chris is rich. Thanks for coming on the show. I know this isn't, Hey, this I, I love it guys. Thank you. <laughs> you're and, uh, right. You know me well, Charlie. <laughs> I, I was thinking, I was thinking uh, one day we need that. We need to have Chris. There's a, there's another rich. Uh, I know it gets confusing. So that's why we reviewed, uh-huh. referred to Richard Liebel as Uber because he was the older, the older uh, Rich. Uh, I'd like to have Rich and maybe Andy the Token Brit uh, and me on the show. I think that would be a riot. And uh, maybe Matt Evan, Matt Evan and Nick have the Liebel men uh, come on there <laughs> as, uh, as well. So Chris, that's we all have, I got. No, we have had offspring on the show before. That's right. Yeah, good that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is precedent for that. Rich, absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Thank this you, was Chris, great. Rib. It's been an honor. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Anytime. Always welcome back. And Charlie, uh, same to you. And I have a feeling that'll be sooner than later. Thanks, Chris. (laughs) All right. So if you haven't subscribed already, subscribe, please. And thank you. If you're on iTunes, a five-star review would be outstanding. Um, We love feedback. Write whatever you want. He has a right to criticize. Who has a heart to help. We're, we welcome any kind of constructive criticism. If you could attach that to a five-star review, that would be even better because the metrics do matter. For the show notes, obviously this one will have a lot of show notes. Um, please look them up. We referenced a whole lot of things. I threw out conspiracy stuff. Uh, we've got great uh, nonprofits that you should be aware of, great uh, veteran transition stuff. We want to make sure you check them out. So go to the show notes. It'll be at the weekly havoc.podbean.com 
or wherever you're listening to this podcast should have the show notes right there as well. In addition, it'll also have alibis for anything I misstated because I frequently do. And I wake up at two in the morning and go, why the hell did I say that like that? Or what was I talking about? Or Charlie said something and I totally blew him off and went in a totally different direction or something weird like that. So I always tend to write up my alibis. If our guests have any alibis, they of course will put them on there as well. But generally I'm just the only one that tends to make those kind of brain farts. Um, so show notes, all that stuff, alibis, all at the weekly havoc.podbean.com or wherever you're listening to this podcast, they should all be there. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. My thanks again to Richard Liebel and Charlie Faint, and we'll see you next time for the Weekly Havoc. Hey, I, I wanted to, to also say, I, I just listened to the uh, the episode with Emily, and I was like, wow, what a tough act it is to follow. I mean, she was just amazing. Just super composed. You'd be very proud yeah, of her. right? I know. Yeah, right. Exactly. And you posed some tough questions to her, Chris. I was like, ah, she knows Middle Eastern politics better than I do. <laughs> I felt I felt what better thing to do than so. ambush a 17-year-old with questions about Iran <laughs> geopolitics. <laughs> Well, I, uh, yeah, but yeah, you, you're very gracious of the way you kind of, uh, you know, navigated through that with her. So I figured, I figured Charlie had set her up. So if anybody was going to take the follow, it'd be him instead of me. But no, she was great. <laughs> she was awesome. 